0: I get really intimidated Beautiful. about using even the most basic tools. And when I can accomplish something with them, I'm like, look what I did! Look what I did!
1: <laughs> true primitivist.
0: Yeah. I try to use my fingernails and my hands. I guess those are one and the same.
2: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman,
1: loyal fan of food-themed album covers. Oh, you're referencing that 10cc offshoot, aren't you?
2: I I could be referencing Godly and Cream's Snack Attack. Could also be referencing the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble's Freedom Burger. Could be... Referencing Mongo Santa Maria's Stone Soul. There's so many good ones out there. Oh.
1: I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, prison warden at the International Dungeons and Dragons Dice Prison.
0: I'm co-host Peter Cook, explorer of the other side of the rainbow.
1: Oh, that was cute. Is there someone else here?
3: There is someone else here. Hello. Coming
1: long distance from Boston.
3: It would be me, and I'm Liara Haas, principal and founder of Nice Price LLC, your number one source for investigating content integrity throughout the dollar bins of Greater Boston and beyond.
2: Nice. Oh,
3: nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Leora. Tell us a little bit about yourself beyond that.
3: Uh, Beyond that. Well, I am a music fan and a record collector, and I am just so absolutely thrilled to be joining you guys for this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm a longtime listener, and I just enjoy the program, and I am ready to talk about some fabulous music with you that is completely underrated and ready to be rediscovered.
4: Hmm.
0: True. Tell the people what we're going to talk about.
3: Oh, boy. Today, we're going to talk about an artist that I don't know about you guys, but when I hear this artist's name, I mean, not only do I think about how incredibly prolific she has been with a career spanning over 55 years, but I also get hungry for foods that I've never consumed before and foods that I've never quite seen on menus uh, when I go out to dine at restaurants. And I wonder if they're just mythical, mythical menu foods. Today, (laughs) we're talking about Melba Moore, which immediately uh, brings to mind uh, Melba toast and peach Melba. I don't know. Have either of you, any of you eaten that before? I mean,
2: (laughs) I have not. I can't say I have. I was honestly wondering where you were going with the food connection. Like, wait, did I miss something? What? What is? <laughs> what
3: is? I thought it was like right Moore.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, it's it's the Melba thing. It's like I've never consumed any any food with a connection to the to the word Melba. So, um, you know, still something to aspire to after uh, this recording today. But um, yeah, today we're talking about Melba Moore. Award-winning singer and actress. Her career spanned nearly 55 years since entering a recording studio in 1966. Mm. And today we're talking about her 12th album titled The Other Side of the Rainbow.
1: How you wanna, How you want people to get a taste of this first? What song are you thinking?
3: Oh, boy. Well, I mean, right off the bat, I think we need to go with Side A, track one. Love's coming at you. Just like this record.
0: Yeah, it's coming at you from Capitol Records, 1982, The Other Side of the Rainbow. Let's get into it.
3: Right out of the gate, the first four notes of this song, they just announced, like, Melba is here, baby. They're just as informing as that Roberto Cavalli power suit she's wearing on the cover of this record. <laughs> it's a power suit and it's a power entrance for a record for sure. Her first record on Capitol Records. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of feels like she's
0: rebranding, and, and here it is.
3: Here she is. She's Melba. You know, it's amazing to me. The like the sound is to me it just sounds like a complete mashup of And the Beat Goes On by the Whispers and also uh, Madonna's Holiday from her nineteen eighty-three debut album.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
3: Yes, <laughs> foreshadowing.
0: Might be a couple connections, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Whenever I hear this song, I just cannot unhear that mashup. But um uh, in general, to me the song is super modern clean, and very, very telling um, as far as a driving force into the sounds that would be heard in clubs in the not-too-distant future. Some friends and I, uh, we joke around about this uh, genre coined sophistipop in our little circle. And what we mean by sophistipop, kind of think like ABC's Lexicon of Love or Brian Ferry, Sade, artists like that, where... It, they're just like these powerhouses, and you know that they came there to get down, but at the same time, they're going to do it really sophisticated. So they're sophisticated, but they're down and they're dirty. And I get very similar vibes of sophistication and polish with this track. So they're there to groove, but at the same time, you better believe the joint's getting classed up as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I've definitely heard a number of people use the term sophisticated funk to talk about a lot of the stuff that was happening around this time period in funk music, where it was taking less of a a focus on that like real sweaty, heavy, you know, gut bucket funk sound and adding more instrumentation and more, more layers and rolling back the tempo a little bit and just giving it that kind of sophisticated vibe. And yeah, this record fits perfectly in there.
0: It might be uh, aided by the fact that on production is a certain figure that we have given accolades to in the past on this podcast. And that would be Kashif.
2: Yeah. Possibly the most talked about artist on this podcast <laughs> so far.
3: <laughs> I thought it was the Kashif show. Really?
2: Yeah. I mean, it might as well be. That's, that's totally fine. Let's just do that. Uh, let's just do that. Kenny G record pretty soon. and yeah. Just keep talking about Kashif every few months. I'm down. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so this was written by Paul Lawrence, who also produced it along with Kashif and Maury Brown. Power Trio. Yeah, yeah. Reached number five on the R&B charts and number two on the Hot Dance singles. It was also a big hit in the UK where it reached number five. Now, as Leora mentioned, Melba does make quite an entrance there, but she's got a lot of friends with her on that track. On backing vocals are... Many people. We have (laughs) Freddie, you are my lady Jackson, who served as a backing singer for Melba after she saw his nightclub act in 1981. So she would have just picked him up before this record. And he, of course, went on to a successful solo career. We also have Allison Williams, who worked with Bobby Brown and Orange Juice Jones, BJ Nelson, who went on to work with Duran Duran and Power Station. That's quite a, a shift in direction there. (laughs) <laughs> Lillo Thomas hope I'm saying his name right worked with Evelyn Champagne King who we have covered on the program Kashif George Benson he was also signed to Capital Fonzie Thornton who worked with Sheik he sang backing vocals on Good Times he also worked sang with Aretha Franklin Mick Jagger David Bowie and Roxy Music worked a lot with Brian Ferry and Philip Ballou who was from the soul and disco band revelation, who I I just checked out for the first time today. And that's pretty hot disco group right there. Sean, you you said you had never heard of them. Have you heard of, of
3: revelation Liara? I actually have not. So add it to the list.
0: Yeah. Uh, So I asked you to come on to talk about Melba more Liara, because I believe I first found her about a year ago around the time that we covered the Evelyn Champagne King album. And I just wanted to find more about what Kashif had done, who he had worked with and found this album, which I was immediately taken with. And I think that I posted a picture of it on our, I'd buy that for a dollar Instagram and someone you knew saw it and tagged you in it. <laughs> I think it, <laughs> apparently you're, you're, you're known as the Melbourne Moore person.
3: Not only the Melbourne, Melbourne more Mel- person, but I'm kind of known for being the uh, the disco funk gal around here. So um, yeah, my friend who actually turned me on to your show, John Corn, Johnny Cyanide. Hey, Johnny, if you're listening, he is the one who informed me about your podcast, and he's the one who tagged me in that. And well, clearly, the rest is history tonight, right?
0: Yeah, it's all culminated <laughs> right here, right now.
3: I'm living the greatest moment. I don't know about you guys, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: I'm still waiting for the other side of the rainbow myself.
0: (laughs) You'll find it, Jeremy. I promise. So yeah. At the end of
3: this podcast. Yeah. By the end of this episode.
0: (laughs) But yeah, how did you uh, come to discover her music? Do you have any particular memories?
3: Well, you know, before I really became familiar with Melba Moore, it was kind of like, hey, who's this woman that's named after this dessert I've never eaten? But really, (laughs) I came across Melba more so through her, some of her earlier works prior to The Other Side of the Rainbow, more of her uh, disco-centric stuff. So she was really known for a single, This Is It. Mm -hmm. And she was also known for her cover off of one of her 20 albums titled Melba. (laughs) You stepped into my life. She's got a couple albums by me, Melba. But, uh, you know, I was really familiar with those singles. And um, as as my disco collection has grown over the years, you know, it's kind of grown more so with her disco-oriented stuff. I'm actually holding in my hand right now a copy of another promo record that I have, Melba Moore, Dancing with Melba. And this is just all disco Melba. So, yeah, I was really coming more from um, the disco Melba perspective I had a copy of this album, The Other Side of the Rainbow. Never paid too much attention to it, though, honestly, until you guys reached out and you've just opened up an entirely new world for me (laughs) regarding what's going on here. I mean, there's just uh, so much disco, so much funk, so little time. Yeah, (laughs)
2: yeah. And most of it's in the dollar bin too.
3: And I was just gonna say, most of it's in the dollar bin So you know, it's it's a busy life we're leading here. And in time <laughs> I can, if this is my version of mindfulness and and slowing down to actually uh, take a look at this copy that I now have on vinyl and and uh, listen to it, I'm I'm game.
1: Awesome. And if you dig in the bins for more than two minutes, you're probably gonna find a Melba Moore record. Absolutely. I feel like I've seen so many.
3: So many Melba Moore records. I mean, the one that I see the most in my, uh, in my bin and shell flipping is the Melba Moore album titled Melba, where the vibe is just so incredibly different from the other side of the rainbow from, a, from an aesthetic perspective and even the precursor um, to Other Side of the Rainbow, What a Woman Needs. This doll, this album that I see in the dollar bin all the time. It's like Melba on a backdrop with a bunch of paint cans, and she's literally painted her name Melba with dripping paint down yeah. the wall. And she, she kind of looks like she's doing this hoedown move with a paintbrush and this rainbow colored jumpsuit. I mean, it's really like you look at it and you're like, what is she on, man?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more of a cheese ball cover than. Than what we're working with right now yeah I also mean, that that was her second album just called melba she put up one in 76 and 78 that were both just melba
3: exactly the melba's get confusing yeah but no, <laughs> th- this one is really wild and it's definitely worth the dollar <laughs> i know we're not here to talk about this one but yeah you know pick me up i'll dance you stepped into my life those are two bangers but The sophistication that we find musically and aesthetically on the other side of the rainbow, it's like you you cannot compare. You would almost think that they're two separate artists to look at them and to hear Mm -hmm. them. Yeah,
2: And this was her most commercially successful time in her career, right? Was this like 80s through the early 90s or something?
3: Well, this was 1982. And so Melville Moore's career, she's kind of... Had her ups and downs, yeah. like stands for the hourglass. So are the days of our lives. But yeah, this this record happens to be during um, a very prolific and uh, fruitful for her time in her career, an upswing. Yeah,
0: she has quite a career. Do we want to get into some of her biography here before we play another track? At least, kind of her early days. Let's do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. She was born. In New York City, October 29th, 1945, her mother was named Gertrude Melba Smith, but she was better known to the world as the popular R&B singer Bonnie Davis. And Melba's father was Teddy Hill, a big band leader. Melba grew up in Harlem until the age of nine when her mother remarried jazz pianist Clem Mormon, who was Melba's mother's accompanist and the family relocated to Newark, New Jersey. So Melba's stepfather, Clem, fostered Melba's musical development, made sure she learned piano even though she was interested in dance. She went on to Montclair State College for a bachelor's in music education, and she briefly taught, but not what she wanted. She wanted to perform. And so her stepfather, Clem Mormon had connections and introduced her to several agents. She chose her stage name, Melba Moore, in honor of her stepfather. She had been born Beatrice Melba Hill or Smith. It accounts vary as to whether she had her father or mother's surname, but Melba Moore is how the world knows her. So she started recording backup tracks for artists like Dionne Warwick and Aretha Franklin. She wasn't working in the same space as them. She was recording separate sessions. During a recording session for an advertisement, she did commercial jingles. She met a guy named Galt McDermott, who was the composer of Hair, a very popular musical Hair. And he invited her to join. So Melba jumped at the opportunity, moved to Broadway. And after a few months, she replaced Diane Keaton as Sheila in Hair. And this was the she was the first black actress to replace a white actress in a lead role on Broadway. And she later won a Tony Award for best performance by a featured actress in a musical for her role in the musical Pearly. She, Melba ultimately saw her time on Broadway as an interruption in her trajectory toward being a lead singer in the world of R&B. However, it did lead her to her first recording contract with Mercury Records. And I would say she carried some of the theatrics of Broadway into her recording career. And one of those is on full display on the final track on this album. I call it The Note. Is that what you would call it,
3: too, Lyra? I'm sitting here doing air quotes right now. That is yeah, the note. The note. So Epic note. Yeah.
1: Legendary note.
3: We're going to
0: play the last two or so minutes of the title track, The Other Side of the Rainbow, Side B, track four. And she holds the final note for something like 38 seconds. It's, uh, it's, all, it's almost alarming. But it's, <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and get into that.
1: First time listening to that, I started questioning if I was hearing a saxophone that had maybe taken over the note, or perhaps this is like tape looped or something, but that is Melba Moore actually singing that note. Wow.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's 36 seconds of Melba Moore singing that note.
1: But it really highlights uh, something I like about Melba Moore is all the different timbres she brings in her vocal takes, similar to how like you know an acoustic guitar is different from an electric guitar, different from a hollow body. They all kind of sound a little different. She does the same thing with her voice where she's just cycling through these timbres within a song, though, like the way she shifts and controls that is pretty mind-blowing
2: kind of reminds me of the gospel episode we did right peter
0: with mahalia
2: yeah given that heavy gospel influence going on not only with the production on that track but definitely with that uh versatility of melba's lead vocals
0: yeah so that was a different production team as ronnie p harris who produced that track and he when he he had been working in his late teens, Ronnie had been working at a local hospital and he saw Melba Moore on television being interviewed. And this inspired him to reach his dreams, his goals of creating and producing artists. So this was probably for him. You know, he's reaching the other side of the rainbow in working with her. <laughs> and and uh, Leora, you said that he did some gospel work as well.
3: Well, yeah, and I was really impressed by the fact to like talk about art imitating life, life imitating art. So yeah, I was also familiar with the fact that Ronnie uh, did see Melba on TV and like talk about a a dream come true where you see something on TV and you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be near that person. So when he was 19, he formed and co-founded a record company with one of his longtime friends um, and a business associate, Jim Raglan, called Emprise. And their first release was a, a group called Family Love with a gospel album titled To Drift From Drummer. Ronnie continued to produce gospel projects for several years around the late 80s as well. So Wild. Um, definitely some gospel, uh, the gospel loop right there.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Looks like he also worked with George Clinton and Bootsy Collins. Doing the song Work That Sucker to Death by Xavier, which is definitely a jam. If people haven't heard that, check that one out.
0: Awesome. Well, Leora, if you'd like to uh, continue Melba's story from where we left off before her kind of leaving Broadway to uh, pursue her career as a recording artist, let's do that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. She had signed with Mercury Records And, you know, had achieved some success and Melba became a frequent guest on TV variety shows, things like Ed Sullivan and Mike Douglas show, Dick Cavett. My personal favorite, if you know me, I am also Boston's greatest uh, Carol Burnett show fan. Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) <laughs> Everybody knows it, and uh, you know Melba Moore. Uh, she did a per- she she made a performance on the Carol Barnett Show. She did a killer cover of, of uh, "You've Got a Friend," but she you know she was kind of doing this whole you know variety show talk show circuit. So in 1972, Melba ended up starring with her then partner and actor Clifton Davis on their own TV show which was supposed to be a temporary replacement for The Carol Burnett Show, which is like blasphemy for me to say that, right? And it was a fairly successful show and likely would have continued uh, Melba down a subsequent path of being on TV had um, her, her personal relationship with Clifton not ended. And, you know, sadly, at this point in time, it was kind of like the beginning of the end for Melba her music career was somewhat of a, at a standstill her managers and financial advisors kind of dumped her and she ended up going back where she grew up from the time she was 9 years old and on beautiful Newark New Jersey and she continued singing but really only for benefits and such so she she was really down for a couple of years from a career perspective but things started to pick up for her in 1974 when she met Manager and promoter Charles Huggins after a performance at the Apollo. And it was at that time she was cast in a role for a film adaptation of the musical Lost in Stars, ended up marrying Charles Huggins in 1975, and then went on to actually start pumping things up in her music career again by signing with Buddha Records for four records, Teach Melba, This Is It, Melba 76, and A Portrait of Melba. And the record Peach Melba actually brought her a second Grammy nomination. And uh, kind of a fun fact about that record is that Wendy from Prince, aka Wendy and Lisa, are credited for doing background vocals on Melba's cover of Donovan's Sunshine, Sunshine Superman on that album. The second release of Melba's on Buddha, This Is It, Definitely enjoyed some success, you know, particularly as a result of her pairing up with producer-writer Van McCoy. The hustle. Um, and to- the hustle and jumping on that disco train, which is kind of where, as I mentioned before, my knowledge of Melba starts to, to really peak here. But this Is It became a dance floor staple, peaks at number nine in the UK, 18 on the Billboard R&B charts and 91 on the Billboard Hot 100. And she also earned a third Grammy nomination for Best R&B Vocal Performance, um, Female, for her cover of Van McCoy's Lean On Me. Not to be confused with the Bill Withers Lean On Me, (laughs) which was recorded by (laughs) Vivian Reed and later hit out of the ballpark by Aretha Franklin as a B-side to Spanish Harlem. Melba also actually held a super long note at the end of that song, starting at about the 23-second mark. But... That's got nothing on the 38 seconds we just heard on other side of the rainbow. (laughs) Around this time, you know, Melba continued acting on TV and Broadway. She played Harriet Tubman in This American Woman, Portraits of Courage, which got her an Emmy nomination. And she also starred in Timbuktu alongside Eartha Kitt. Yeah. Catwoman. Yeah. That only lasted a few weeks, though, for some reason. The play was a success, but um, Melba only took it for a few weeks of performances, She enjoyed some success on the Buddha label, but, you know, she didn't really achieve exactly everything she was looking for. So once again, she made the jump over to Epic label and ended up um, recording another album, which we were talking about for Melba. And um, that was produced by McFadden and Whitehead. And Philly team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, ain't no stopping us now. Melba can reach her goals. That album, Melba, as we talked about earlier, um, includes you know her cover of the Bee Gees' You Stepped Into My Life, which reached number five on the Billboard Dance Disco charts, 47 on the Hot 100, and 17 on the R&B charts. And then um, McFadden and Whitehead also penned the song Pick Me Up I'll Dance, which um, you know really became a good club song. Again, Melba achieved some success with her switch over to, to Epic. She released two more albums on that label, one titled "Burn." Which was produced by Pete Below, if I am pronouncing that properly, and I bring that up, which is kind of interesting because he worked with Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer, so you kind of get that real good disco connection there, mm, yeah, as well. And then Melba jumped again over to EMI in nineteen eighty one to record her record "What a Woman Needs," which was also McFadden and Whitehead produced. And in my opinion, almost a precursor to the other side of the rainbow, you know, which is where we're picking up in 1982. Yeah.
2: Well, it does have some Kashif work on it as well. I think that was the first time where they started working together on like maybe two tracks on it, something like that.
3: Yeah. uh, The song Take My Love was produced by Kashif. The vocal was also produced by Kashif and uh, Lawrence Jones as well. So um, there's definitely that Kashif connection and that almost, when you listen to that song on that album, Melba Moore's What a Woman Needs, it's really like love's coming at you light.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
3: and one of the things I really noticed that's, that's interesting uh, um, between 1981 and 1982, What a Woman Needs and The Other Side of the Rainbow, I consider these two records, along with the album that Melba released after The Other Side of the Rainbow, Never Say Never, this is kind of like her version of the Bowie trilogy where they're just like hunt three really killer records. But these are also three really killer records where Melba's posing in these power suits.
2: Yeah, yeah it's the it's the power suit trio. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
3: <laughs> totally the power suit trio. I mean, she's got full on tux on what a woman needs. And then, you know, we've kind of talked about the Cavalli power suit on the other side of the rainbow. And then, um, you know, burn is kind of like reminds me of a, a Grace Jones vibe to it when you look mm-hmm. at that cover definitely very much so so that's an observation i made with those
0: i had no- i had noticed that too so i'm glad you brought that up because i was just kind of going i noticed the the change in her album covers and kind of what they seem to be trying to represent and i noticed that there was definitely starting in 81 there started to be uniformity for a few years
3: absolutely yeah And again, it kind of ties into what we're talking about with the music that we're hearing on the other side of the rainbow. You know, it's very sophisticated, but it's funky and um, it's grit and glamour.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I guess the uh, photographer for this album cover was Jim Houghton. And he was actually ACDC's photographer for a lot of their albums, along with Billy Joel, but also the Isley Brothers Go All the Way, which we covered. Couple months ago.
2: Nice. Oh yeah. Uh,
3: I I really enjoyed that episode. By the way, that was a good one.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you. A lot of fun to get into some Isleys. So, what what did we want to play next?
3: I think we were going in for um,
0: Under Love. Under Love. It is side A, track two, produced solely by Kashif. Full
1: on Kashif.
2: been well documented on this show that i'm a lover of synth bass and it just doesn't get any better than my man kashif proven once again on that track why he is just forever the king of synth bass funk yeah that bass punched and also you know oh it just punches so hard and then like we've talked about so many times on you know previous kashif episodes there's still just so much space He elevates the track without stealing any of the spotlight from Melba, whoever else he's producing for. It's great. Love it. Big fan.
3: Yeah, I completely agree with you guys. I mean, and I think that's part of what lends itself to, you know, the sophistication that we're talking about is that there's this space so that you can really hear everything shine. Uh, Melba's voice, the instruments, which, you know. Were relatively newer at that time, right? I know when you're Kashif episode, um, you guys talked about how he just loved to experiment and figure things out. And you know, I'm sure there's no doubt <laughs> in my mind that he's doing more of the same on on you know some of these songs that he's uh, he's playing on for Melba. And Not only that, in addition to Kashif playing on the song, you know, we've got some heavy heavy hitters here on this particular track. We've got Leslie Ming who I know you all have spoken about on previous episodes of I'd buy that for a dollar, especially in connection with his playing with BT Express, Kashif and, and Wesley. And then uh, we've got Bashiri Johnson on percussion, Ira Siegel and uh, Ronald Head Drayton on guitar. And on backing vocals, I really love this. So you've got Kashif. And then why not credit yourself? You've got Melba Moore on backing vocals. Um <laughs> Lilo Thomas and B.J. Nelson.
0: It's another gang of, of backing vocalists.
3: I don't know. The fact that Melba's credited as a backing vocalist, I don't know why that just tickles me, but it does.
2: <laughs> she does it all.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, again, like there's there's just this great space in the song with that Kashif stamp on it sounding so futuristic and club worthy. And the song itself reminds me a lot of another song to come in the future of Madonna's, um, which was Like a Virgin. That was actually from her second album, but which was uh, produced by Nile Rodgers and Bertie Edwards' camp. And I don't think any of the musicians from The Other Side of the Rainbow appear on Madonna's second record.
0: No, it's all the first one.
3: <laughs> it, yeah, that's what I think is so fascinating. The but dun-dun-dun is that uh, Madonna's debut album, You've Got Leslie Ming, I read this great article about Leslie Ming talking all about the process of recording for that, even though I, I didn't couldn't find much more about it. I found this pretty in-depth um, interview where he said he was on it. You've got Bashiri Johnson, who played some percussion on Madonna's debut. You've got Ira Siegel, who also played guitar on Madonna's debut as well. So there are these little building blocks and these stepping stones that are just building upon each other to get to where they always say the future is now. Well, maybe the future was with Melba and Madonna just kind of elevated it even more to the masses than, than Melba.
0: Yeah. That's uh, unfortunately it seems like Melba had a lot of access on the dance and R and B charts, but not as much crossing over onto the hot one hundred. All of them seem to be higher than 40 or, or lower, I guess you would say like, you know, she didn't really hit the top 40 a great deal.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to agree. And if anything, based on some of the research I've done on Melba and what I've read, she almost gained more success on the dance floors in the UK Mm -hmm. than the States here, which isn't uncommon, but it makes me wonder why Mm -hmm. are are people more open to to newer sounds or, you know, more polished and sophisticated sounds over there than here? Possibly.
2: Well, Melba also had a, a Northern Soul single in 1966 that was like pretty notable with like the underground UK DJ scene. So it probably is a a lot of connection to that as well.
3: Yeah. It could very well be.
2: Yeah. That's the song does love believe in me that came out on Musicor records in 1966.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She had that one single that was kind of well in advance of everything else in her recording career. So Melba continued to have success with singles in the eighties. Uh, for Read My Lips in 1985, she earned her fourth Grammy nomination. She also continued acting. In 1986, she headlined her own TV sitcom, simply titled Melba, just like multiple albums of hers. <laughs> 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 it premiered the same night as the Challenger explosion, and the remaining five episodes were postponed, and the project ultimately fizzled,
1: unfortunately. Oh, and a strange tie to our last episode, The Challenger Explosion. Oh.
2: Right, where well, it was supposed to be the first uh, saxophone track recorded in space.
3: Wow, two in a row.
2: Yeah, weird.
3: <laughs> Melba was just carrying on with various TV appearances and singles. She appeared on some episodes of Falcon Crest, which I thought was funny. That seemed like such an adult show when you're a kid, Falcon's Crest, so I can't say I, I've ever watched that. She released seven more singles between 1987 and 1990. And then when um, 1991, here it is, the, the Curse of Melba again. Another string of bad luck hit her. Her husband, of 15 years, Charles Huggins, sadly decided to divorce her out of nowhere. And she ended up flat broke, even worse than the, in and around the year 1972 after her first breakup. Melba actually ended up on Welfare and was somehow slowly but surely able to rebound and rebuild her life. Uh, She toured with the Atkins sisters in Michael Matthews' gospel play, Mama, I'm Sorry. And um, she started to perform a one-woman musical autobiography, which was variously titled, but at one point would eventually become Sweet Songs of the Soul. Yeah. And yeah, in a stroke of luck, a Broadway agent caught her solo act realized that her voice would be an absolute perfect fit for the part of Fantine in Les Miserables. What a stroke of luck that was indeed. So in in January of 95, she found her way back again to Broadway, and she was the first Black actress to play the role of Fantine in Les Miserables. Really impressive.
0: Another Broadway breakthrough.
3: Yeah, and another Broadway first. Yeah. And she carried on. In uh, 1996, she released her first album in over six years, titled Happy Together, with the Lafayette Harris Jr. Trio. And she continued to be prolific in both music and acting uh, in the 90s and 2000s and beyond. She appeared in The Fighting Temptations with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Beyonce. She was in the touring version of Brooklyn alongside American Idol alum Diana DeGarmo. As you mentioned, she's done several voiceovers, started her own cabaret act at the Carlisle um, 2011 called Forevermore, and then went on to develop her own one-woman play Still Standing, the Melba Moore story. And that was actually what became a development of Sweet Songs of the Soul that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And to this day, Melba, it continues to be active, to be busy, and to release really good club-worthy music. Um, As a matter of fact, she uh, recently released a song called I'm Just Doing Me, which has been getting some traction. I'd love to say it's been getting some traction in the clubs, but uh, clubs really haven't been a thing over the past year. But um, throughout that time, yeah, she released a single called I'm Just Doing Me, which actually got the legendary Chicago house DJ Terry Hunter treatment. So She's an absolute firecracker. And I happen to be, you know, mindlessly scrolling through my Facebook feed a couple of weeks ago. And she's doing a live broadcast with the Newark Symphony Orchestra, where it all started, you know, for Melba and Newark. But Melba Moore is a special guest star just talking about her life in Newark and her experiences as a performer on both stage and screen and, um, and music. And she's just, you know, to listen to her Speak, Melba has got the spirit baby, like she is one of those people who's just eternally young, and she wants to keep working, and she just seems so excited to be involved and to be busy and to be working and to keep pushing forward and I was just very impressed by by what she had to say in that in that interview that I watched with her a couple of weeks ago, so I definitely do not think this is the last that we've heard of Melba in her. Fifty-five year career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I was really surprised. Uh, I knew that when I, this was the first album first that I got into, and it was her twelfth album. And uh, but I was—I had no idea about all the Broadway stuff and acting, voiceover work. Just she just keeps pushing forward.
3: Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that'll keep the keep you young, though, right? Always change. I mean, she's very. When you do think about it, having learned more about her in addition to what I already knew about her, she is she's kind of like you know chameleonic, like Bowie in her own sense. I mean, she is really, and several other of the artists who I know you've discussed here on "I'd Buy That for a Dollar," where um, I know you've discussed that, especially um, talking about when the Isley Brothers episode how they were kind of had like some newer blood with the younger family members and you still had the older family members but these groups that start off in the 60s or these artists that begin in the 60s and they ride these waves of of changing uh tides aesthetically and culturally and artistically and it just shocks me that we don't hear more about melba than we really should she's a powerhouse we need melba more and more we need give me give me more, Melba, Melba more. Yeah. Give me more.
1: I think if you start making internet posts about the power suit trio, I think that could catch on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that might be it.
1: Also way less
2: problematic than Bowie's Berlin trilogy, I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> oh, true.
3: <laughs> Possibly less drug fueled, but you never know.
2: Yeah, significantly fewer Hitler references in Melba's catalog, so like that's a plus.
0: <laughs> significantly fewer.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Sean, I hope there are no Hitler references on your Spotify playlist. But uh...
2: oh, well, I hope so as well. <laughs> I can't a hundred percent guarantee it, but <laughs> should be Hitler free. <laughs> And some of those tracks (laughs) include the great Patrice Russian for a little bit of a, a jazz funk crossover sound from her classic Straight from the Heart album. Got some Kashif from his first solo record just one year after this one in 1983. Madonna, who we've mentioned, is also on there. And then, of course, title track from Evelyn Champagne King's Get Loose album, Same year as this record, also Kashif produced. Yeah,
0: a lot of uh, player ties.
2: (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite examples of a sophisticated funk band is the group Change. I put the song Hold Tight from their album Miracles on there. Denise Williams, who we featured on the show before. Uh, Eddie Harris for some more of the jazz soul crossover. Van McCoy, who we mentioned. Aretha Franklin featuring some... Backing vocals from Melba Moore, Angela Bofill, who I think is a really good artist. We should have on the show at some point. Midnight Star, isley Brothers, Cheryl Lynn, Jody Watley, Freddie Jackson, and others. You can find the playlist on Spotify. Just search "I'd Buy That" podcast, all one word, and dive into the the funky world of Melba Moore.
0: Excellent. And if you are listening, like what you hear, and want. More, not necessarily Melba, but more. You can always support us on Patreon.com/slash I'd buy that podcast. Where at different pledge tiers, you can receive different content. So check that out: Patreon.com/slash I'd buy that podcast. If you pledge at the five-dollar tier and up, there are bonus episodes. We have about a dozen of those at this point. And you can also, if if, if you can't financially support us, you can always leave us a review. Some kind words on the platform of your choice can go a long way to helping us find new listeners. Let's turn things over to Leora. Do you have anything you'd like to plug while you're here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody should just go out when it's safe to do so and go buy some records. Music is definitely something that I'm passionate about. I am an avid record collector. And, um, you know, when I'm not busy working at my consultancy for branding content and strategy called Play Your Passion which is actually a play on my passion, which is record collecting. You can find me uh, hanging out at the dollar bins uh, in and around greater Boston and possibly soon to be the UK. Ooh. Yes, yes. A big move coming up in my world eventually. On the days when I'm not working, I can be found hanging out at those dollar bins. Uh, my favorite is Village Vinyl in Brookline. That's my second home away from home. And uh, just get out there and get that music. And it's so important to just listen and be able to get out there and collect it and share music with people. Music is such a personal thing for everybody. And people have this tendency to maybe latch onto an artist and say, this is, you know, I love this artist. But there's nothing more exciting for me than buying these crazy records that, you know, I've never heard of and learning about them and hearing about them finding out their bangers, and then just sharing them with the world. So I can't wait to be able to do that again in a a soon-to-be post-COVID pandemic world, um, you know, out there hopefully DJing some nights with some friends and um, getting out there and doing what I love even more so, which is uh, finding those records.
0: Yeah, and you occasionally post record reviews on your Instagram. Do you want to plug that for people?
3: I do thank you absolutely yes I can be found on Instagram my handle is Liara Haas and that's spelled L-E-A-U-R-A H-O-S-S feel free to shoot me a request and uh, we'll take it from there
0: excellent well do any of us have any final thoughts on Melba Moore I mean I know these aren't going to be final thoughts on Kashif there's no way we're getting away from Kashif (laughs) but while we're talking about (laughs) Melba Moore
1: oh no I kind of wanted to piggyback on what Leora was saying about getting out and buying records. You don't know. Cause one thing I've noticed about it is the more you do it and the more you read about these names, it just gets like better and better as time goes on. Mm -hmm. It's uh, like the opposite of most things where you do it and it gets kind of lamer and lamer as time goes on, (laughs) this gets better. Yeah. It's really cool when, you start to get to know
0: session players names familiarize with labels more and then start to see those names in other places and can identify what something is just by seeing that information on a record
2: yep it takes all the overwhelming parts of uh, record shopping and just makes it exciting when you can pull out a record where you Totally unfamiliar with it. And then look to the back and be like, oh, well, that guitarist rips. I guess I'm going to check this record out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Just keeps getting better. Keep on digging.
3: <laughs> Maybe somebody will invent the uh, internet app version or the phone app version of 23 Me," where you can play a few seconds of a song and then all of a sudden get the entire musical family tree based on those notes how crazy would that be
1: oh Oh, i hope not
2: yeah until then they're just gonna have to keep listening to episodes of i'd buy that for a (laughs) dollar
3: yeah we we should register that right now let's get on that trade yep we will
0: uh wrap this episode up and get right on that that patent well
1: by the time you hear this this will that'll already be patent so don't even try listeners
0: Don't even try. That's the message we're going to leave you with. Well, I wanted to get out of here on how's love been treating you. Side B track one is written by Lottie Golden and Richard Scher. early progenitors in electro and hip hop. They did the, they were the producers of warp nine. That's one of the early electro groups, a real classic and, Lottie is one of the backing vocalists on this track as well.
1: Well, thanks for joining us, Leora. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman.
0: I'm Peter Cook.
3: And I'm Leora Haas. Thank you so much.